All right. Well, good morning, church. Hey, listen, if you're new here today, my name is Will. And, uh, you know, I was thinking earlier this week that there's been so many people that have been added to High Point, that have joined High Point uh, since I got here. And so I just want to take a quick, quick moment. If you don't know uh, anything about me, um, I serve as the lead pastor here at, uh, at High Point Church. I am married to the most beautiful and most incredible woman in all the land. Uh, we, uh, her name is Lily. We dated for five years, have been married for 11 years. Uh, we are the proud parents of two incredible little girls, uh, Leah, who is eight, and Alicia, who is five. And so I just wanted to share a little bit about who I am, because I think so often you can just see someone either on stage or on a screen, and you have no idea who they are. So if you're tuning in for the first time, uh, or if you're here in the building for the first time, I just want you to know a little bit uh, about who I am. And uh, before I jump in, I just want to quickly say hello to our entire High Point family. Pastor Josh says this all the time, we are, we are a family here. Um, and so I want to take a moment and say hello to the Kyrieville campus. And uh, I also want to say hello to our church at home campus. We have so many church at home groups meeting all throughout the nation. And so shout out to the church at homes who are in the Mid-South and the Midwest and the Northeast and the West Coast and all over that weird mountain range area that in the middle. Uh, uh, we are so grateful uh, for each and every one of you. And uh, please know that we love you and that we are thankful for you, that we are praying for you, and that we consider it an absolute honor to have you here as a part of our extended High Point family. Now, today, we are in the fourth week of our 12-week series through the letter of Colossians, through the letter of Colossians. And, and, and today, uh, the, the topic and the theme that we are going to be addressing and unpacking uh, was actually introduced last week. So last week in the passage, right in the final verse, uh, the Apostle Paul introduces us to a topic, to a theme that he's going to further unpack and explain here. And so the topic and theme that we are going to be addressing this morning is the topic and theme of reconciliation. Reconciliation. Uh, and our passage today uh, comes from Colossians chapter 1, 21 through 23. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. If you have your devices, go ahead and turn them on, um, or it'll be on the screen uh, below me. So uh, right there beneath me as I go through it, you'll see it there. So Colossians 1, 21 through 23. And what we're going to do today is we're going to look at this passage under four headings, four headings, okay? So we're going to start today by looking at the need for reconciliation, and then we're going to look at the means for reconciliation. Then after that, we will look at the goal of reconciliation, and we will conclude by looking at the proof of reconciliation. So the need, the means, the goal, and the proof. But we're going to start today by looking at the need, the need for reconciliation. And to show you the need, I want to read to you uh, the beginning of the passage, which is verse 21. Look what Paul writes. He says, and you who were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. And you who were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. So what the apostle Paul does here is he begins the passage by telling us the, the need for reconciliation. 
He, he starts by giving us the need. So at the end of verse 20, if you have your Bibles, you can see at the end of verse 20 is what we were looking at uh, last week. Uh, Paul ends by saying that part of the reason why Jesus showed up on the scene was in order to reconcile all things by the blood of his cross, right? So, so that's, that's the, 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 the word where he starts, the idea of reconciliation. So in verse 15, verses 15 through 20, the Apostle Paul introduces the idea of reconciliation in general, of all things in general. But then in verse 21, he starts to talk to us about the idea of reconciliation for sinners in particular. So he goes from talking about it, of reconciliation in general, of all things, to the reconciliation of sinners in particular. And so what we find here in verse 21 is Paul's description of our need for reconciliation. And just to show you how, how deep our need actually is, I want to unpack some of the words here for you. There are some words here that once you really understand what they mean, and they really help to show us just how needy you and I are and you and I were prior to coming to Jesus, okay? The first word uh, that I want to highlight for you here is the word alienated, alienated. Now, the word alienated in, in the Greek, it means to be estranged from somebody, it literally means to be separated from somebody. It means to be cut off from somebody in every way, spiritually, relationally, financially. It means literally to be cut off from someone. And one of the things that I found interesting as I was studying the word alienated is that it, it, in, in, in the original language, it means to literally be transferred from one owner to another. It's like there's been a, sh a title shift. Someone had a title and that title had meant that they were owners of you. And the title's been transferred from one owner to the other. So get this. For those who either used to be non-Christians non and for those who are still non-Christians, according to this passage, you are alienated or you were alienated from God. Literally, I know this sounds crazy, but, but the title belonged to Satan. That, that's, what, that's what it means there. And we know that's true because previously in, Col in Colossians, we saw that one of the things that Jesus did for us is he transferred us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the son he loves, right? And, 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 and the, the, that phrase there, domain, it means that you and I, prior to coming to Jesus, we're literally under the authority and the power of Satan. And that's why Jesus uh, tells people in the New Testament that your father is not my father in heaven, your father is Satan. So, so it shows you that that's, that's a pretty bad place to be. Just to show you how desperate our need was. We were alienated from God and we were the property of the enemy. We're, we were in the domain of darkness. Then the other phrase that I want to unpack for you that I, that I feel will help us understand just how needy we are of reconciliation is the phrase hostile in mind. The, the, the word there, hostile, uh, it literally means to be at enmity with someone, to despise someone to be at war with someone, to hate someone. And then when it says in mind, we tend to think of only our, our thought life, that we were hostile towards God in how we think. But actually the phrase there, in mind, it has to do more than, it's not less than thinking, but it's much more than thinking. It literally means to your, your demeanor, uh, your approach, your disposition towards God was one of hostility. You, he was your enemy. You were opposed to him. You, you were at war with him. You, you hated him him, or still do if you don't have faith in Jesus. This is pretty serious language that Paul's using. And then he takes it to a whole nother level when he talks about doing evil deeds. The word there, evil, 
Uh, deeds just means actions or behaviors. But the word there, evil, means something that is uh, immoral or wicked. That's who we were prior to Jesus. Now, now think about this. This is what the other thing it means. This actually was eye-opening for me. The word there, evil, doesn't just mean immoral or wicked behavior. But here's what it also means. It means useless or worthless or works that are of no value. So, so get this, get this, okay? According to Paul, prior to coming to Jesus, you can avoid Jesus in two ways. You can do immoral, evil, wicked things, or you can do all the right things for the wrong reasons. Things that are worthless, useless, and of no value in God's eyes. Works apart from Christ, you can do good things once you're in Jesus, right? But to, to try to save yourself through works, it isn't a thing. And those works are like filthy rags, the Old Testament says. They are worthless. They are useless. They are of no value. So, so get this. I want you to understand this, especially in the South. You can avoid Jesus in two ways, through rebellion or through religion. You can avoid Jesus by doing all the wrong things or by trying to do all the right things. So when you look at the New Testament, the Pharisees were just as far from Jesus, I would argue even more so, than the, the prostitutes and the pimps and the tax collectors were. Because you can avoid Jesus both ways. You can avoid Jesus by doing evil, wicked, immoral deeds, or you can avoid Jesus by doing good deeds that are of no value, of no worth, and are useless. Okay, so, so what you see here, hopefully, is you see just how desperate our need for reconciliation actually is. Here's what Paul wants us to understand, okay? In order for us to appreciate who we are, we have to admit who we were. In other words, if the bad news isn't that bad, then the good news isn't that good. You get what I'm saying? That's what Paul wants us to understand. And actually, this isn't just a concept that's introduced to us in the New Testament. When you go back to the Old Testament, you also see it. Isaiah, in uh, chapter 59 of his uh, book, here's what Isaiah says. He says, behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. He says, the problem is not the Lord. Listen to verse, 20, verse 2 of Isaiah 59. Isaiah says, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. So what's Isaiah saying? Isaiah's saying the problem is not God's saving power, it's our sinful condition. That's how broken and sinful and wayward we are. The, the Bible wants you to understand that prior to coming to Jesus, you were sinful you were wicked, you were depraved at the head level, the heart level, and the hand level. At every single level, we are sinners by nature and by choice. That, that's what scripture is attempting to teach us. Now, the question is, if that's true, that we need reconciliation, that this was our condition prior to Jesus, how does that change? Like, how does that practically impact us today? Well, well I would say that there are two implications that come from this, this concept of our need for reconciliation. I think that if what Paul is saying here is true, it should change the way you view salvation, which is believing in Jesus, and it should also change the way you view sanctification, which is becoming like Jesus, okay? So let's begin with the first thing. The first thing that should change if this is true 
is your view of salvation. And here's what I mean. Some of you may not know this part of my story, but I didn't grow up in church. Um, I actually didn't become a, a, a Christian, uh, a believer in Jesus till I was 18. I, I went on a youth retreat, and the only reason why I was there was to get a girl's number. I, end up get, I ended up getting her number. She's my wife, so holla at your boy. Your boy, you know, I did it, you know. Uh, uh, the Lord showed her the light and revealed uh, his will for her life, right? One L. And so anyways, so, so that's how that story ended. But, but when I was at the retreat, I was only there to get Lily's number. And I remember as the sermon was happening, the first night of this retreat, you know, if you would have told me prior to that, hey, remember what Paul says about our previous condition, right? We were hostile in mind, we were alienated, and we were doing evil deeds. Like when it came to my conduct, my external conduct, I really had no problem believing that I wasn't living up to God's standard. That was pretty obvious. I was a pagan, and there was nothing Christian about my life. So if you were to tell me, hey, do you feel like you're living up to God's standards prior to believing in Jesus? I'd be like, no, probably not. My conduct isn't great, right? But here's what's so fascinating about that night. As the pastor, the youth pastor was preaching from the other youth group, here's what happened. I realized that it wasn't just my external conduct that was off. It was my internal condition that was off. I never knew that. And listen, if, if you know anything about me, is, and my wife will tell you this, I don't, I, I don't like being like off with someone. Like if I have an issue with somebody, I got to deal with it. I don't want to read my Bible. I don't want to pray. I don't want to prep my sermon until I deal with whatever that issue is. I just, that's just how I've always been, right? Well, here's the thing. Take that feeling and multiply it by a million, and that's how I was with God and didn't even know it. I remember that night being so shocked because I, up to that point, I thought my problem was just external conduct. And then all of a sudden in the middle of this sermon, I discovered that it's not just my external conduct that's off, it's my internal condition that's off. I am a sinner both externally and internally. And I remember the sermon ended and I sat down with my youth pastor who wasn't preaching that night and he explained to me that it wasn't just a condition a conduct problem. It was a condition problem. And I remember just being so blown away by just how needy of reconciliation that I was. It was, it was mind-blowing to me that the only way I could have possibly come to God is if he did the work because it wasn't just a behavior modification that needed to happen. It was a heart transformation that needed to happen. So, so, so what does that mean for you? Well, it means two things. If you're sitting here today and you haven't placed your faith in Jesus... I want you to know that what placing your faith in Jesus does, it doesn't just, you, you might be thinking, oh, I don't know if I want this whole Jesus thing, because then I got to, you know, be, start behaving, and I got to start reading my Bible, and I got to be at church, and I got to start living to all these standards. If that's what you think Christianity is, then you're only looking at it from the external conduct place or perspective. But when you understand that believing in Jesus is not just the changing of your external conduct, but of your internal condition... Now you realize, whoa, only God can save me because I can try to modify my behavior, but I can't transform my heart. Only God can do that. And not only, so, so hopefully if that's you and you haven't done that, I'm going to give you the opportunity to do that at the end of this message, to, to believe in Jesus as your Lord and, in, and, and as your Savior. But here's the other thing about the salvation piece. You, maybe you're a parent here today and you're praying for your child. Or maybe you're a grandparent and you're praying uh, for your grandkids. Or maybe you're a spouse and you're praying for your, your, your spouse. And you're praying for their salvation and you're praying for them to come to know Jesus. Here's what I need you to understand. Uh, what you're praying for is a miracle that only God can do. I, I want you to understand that. Because here's what happens. When I was a youth pastor, 
Hey, here, shout out real quick. Shout out to everyone who worked at Element, by the way. This weekend was Element, and it ended up being incredible. So shout out to Drew and Parker and, and Carrie and everyone on the team. Can we give everybody a round of applause for just the awesome, for all the volunteers and everybody that played a role in that? I got to visit and see it, and it was so cool to see how God was working. And here's the thing about being in youth ministry. I've had parents, I can't tell you how many times parents have done this. I have a parent come up to me as a youth pastor. I did it for 10 years. And they would come up to me and be like, hey, you know, my son, Billy, Timmy, whatever his name, let's say it's Timmy for, for just the story's sake. Hey, Timmy, he's a really good kid. He's got a really good heart. You know what I think Timmy needs? Timmy just needs some community. If he can just get around the right people, I think it just could change his, his trajectory and everything will be good. And here's the problem with Timmy, though. Timmy doesn't just need behavior modification. According to the Bible, Timothy's either spiritually dead or he's spiritually alive. It's either Ephesians 2, he's dead, or John 3, he's alive. That's it. There's no in between. The gospel is not about making good people better. The gospel is about making dead people alive. Can I get an amen? And so when I have a parent come up to me and say, all my son needs is a little boost, just get him in the right community and he'll get better. No, 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 no. It's, what has to happen is a miracle from God. God has to work because if he's spiritually dead, he is hostile in mind towards God. He, he's alienated from God. So, so when you see your kids, whether they're young or they're, they're adults or your grandkids or your nieces or your nephew or your spouse, they aren't just good people that have to get better. They are sinners, dead sinners who need to be made alive. That changes the way you pray. And if your kids, I don't care if they prayed the prayer, walked the aisle. If, if, if they're not proving it, you pray for them as, a, as, as someone who's not saved until God does the work. Instead of falling into false security and giving them, them false security, pray in light of this passage. But here's the other thing. It, it doesn't just change our view of salvation, but I would argue that it changes our view of sanctification. So if salvation is believing in Jesus, right, for the first time, sanctification is the process of becoming like Jesus, Okay. Here's what I need you to know, and this is so important. Let me, let me pastor you here for a second, because I wish someone would have told me this when I was younger, okay? When you come to faith in Jesus, your mind, your head, and your heart, your flesh, it's not neutral. Here's what I mean. You don't start at zero and then like, okay, now I'm a neutral person. I've hit the reset button, and I just got to get back. I got to just become more like Jesus now. You need to understand if that before you came to Jesus, you were hostile in mind and sinful at the heart level. That doesn't change overnight. You're not starting at neutral. You have to realize that everything in your person, even after coming to know Jesus, is gonna wanna default back to the patterns and to the behaviors that were there before. This is why uh, Paul says in Romans 12, one and two, to not be conformed to the patterns of this world, but instead be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Your and my sinful mind needs to be renewed daily through the word of God. And through the work of God, it has to. So, so when you look at sanctification, it changes the view. So in other words, there's no such thing as staying still in your sanctification. If you're not actively pursuing Jesus, I've used this illustration in the past, but it's like an escalator that's going down. If you're not actively going up that escalator, there's no such thing as staying still. You are going to move. The escalator is going to keep moving you down. You get what I'm saying? And so because you are hostile in mind, 
at the head level. You are a sinner and broken at the heart level. You have to realize there's no such thing as neutrality. You're starting in the negative. And if you aren't intentionally growing in the renewing of your mind, you better believe that you're going to start conforming to the patterns of this world. Uh, Let me give you an example to help illustrate this. So I was, uh, earlier this week, I'm driving my my Nissan Altima, and all of a sudden, this this really weird thing started happening. I don't know what it was, but my car started sputtering a little bit. And the miles per hour gauge would stay the same, but the RPMs would drop just drastically from like eight, nine down to zero. And my car would literally like almost like hit the brakes. So that's how it was at the beginning of the week. And then to the point where by the time Thursday, Friday came, no, maybe it was like Wednesday, right around Wednesday, a Wednesday, it got so bad that I would stop at a stop sign or at a stoplight and I would hit the accelerator and my RPMs would shoot up, but my miles per hour wouldn't move. So my car would just be revving, 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 revving. And then after about four or five seconds, it would like shoot out like a rubber band. Very dangerous. I don't recommend it. <laughs> and the people behind me are honking at me. They're like, what are you doing? The light's green. And really, I would be pressing the RPMs as hard as I could, or the, the, the accelerator, and the RPMs would be going crazy. You're, I'm making a bunch of noise, but no progress. There are Christians here today that are making a lot of noise and no progress. And you know what it felt like? It felt like when I was doing driver's ed and, and in high school and my instructor had a brake. That's what it felt like. Like it felt like I was hitting the accelerator and someone else was hitting the brake. But here's what you need to understand, guys. For a lot of us, that's exactly why we're not growing in our sanctification. It's actually exactly why we're not becoming more like Jesus. Because we think that sanctification just means adding a bunch of new stuff to your life. I got to read the Bible now. I got to be in community now. I got to go to church now. But I would argue that sanctification has just as much to do with subtraction as it does with addition. If you are not neutral, you are a sinner by nature and by choice, you have to realize that in order for you to grow like Jesus, you don't have to just add all the good stuff. You have to subtract the bad stuff. You can't read your Bible in the morning and then uh, uh, be online watching political stuff the rest of the day or be online uh, 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 committing idolatry on social media or watching shows that don't edify you. Look, I'm not trying to be legalistic here. I'm just trying to tell you why for me it took so long to become more like Jesus. Like my Christian walk was, was literally stunted for so long because I would read my Bible and then listen to Drake for the next three hours. And every song is a sermon. It's a worldview being communicated to you. So the Bible's saying one thing and then the song, the music you listen to is telling you something completely different. And then you wonder why you don't change. You're hitting the accelerator with one foot and holding the brake with the other foot. And to truly become like Jesus is not just addition of the good stuff, but it's the subtraction of the bad stuff. Why? Because your mind is not neutral and your mind is always, your heart and your mind are always going to gravitate towards the bad stuff. It's almost like you, before Jesus, you had a, a speaker and it was blow, you're just blaring, right? The knob was turned all the way up. And now that you're in Jesus, instead of turning the bad speaker down, you just grab the Jesus speaker and put it up louder than the other one. So you have two speakers blaring at you at the same time. Sometimes the way we grow into the image of Christ is not by turning the good speaker up, but by turning the bad speaker down. I'm not saying that you can't ever watch a secular show or secular music. I'm just saying you have to be aware of what tempts you and what causes you to stumble. And you don't have to turn the volume all the way off. But you got to turn that volume down because if you don't, the only person stopping you from growing is yourself. You're hitting the accelerator with one foot and the brake with the other. So 
That is the need for reconciliation. Now that we've seen the need, I want to look at the means. The means for reconciliation. Look what Paul says next, verse 22. He says, he, he being Jesus, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. He, Jesus, has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. So, so here's what Paul does, okay? Now, we're going to switch gears now, and we're going to look at, we've, looked at, we've seen the need, and we're now, we're, now we're going to look at the means for reconciliation. Paul goes from describing the severity of the problem in verse 21 to describing the beauty of the solution in verse 22. He tells us that, the, talks to us essentially about the means for reconciliation. How do we actually get reconciled with God. Paul says that the opposite of alienation is reconciliation. In direct response, he uses two words that are the exact opposite in Greek on purpose. We are alienated, and so the only thing that can be done in order for us to be made right is to be reconciled. Sinful alienation can only be rectified through gospel reconciliation. He, he, he goes from talking to us about our former state alienation, to talking to us about our current state, reconciliation. But what I love about what Paul does is he actually explains to us the means. Like, how do we go from one to the other? How does that actually happen? Well, if you remember last week, um, I defined the word reconciliation for you. Here's what the word means. The word there in Greek, reconciliation, it means to change a relationship from enemy to friend. It literally means to bring resolution to the problem and restoration to the relationship. That's what it means to be reconciled in the Bible. Jesus shows up and he reconciles us. Here's what's beautiful about this, okay? What Paul's saying here is that the means for our reconciliation was this. The same creator, the supreme creator of verses 15 through 20 becomes a sacrificial savior in verses 21 and 23. The, the, the creator of heaven and earth who's sitting in heaven came down to earth and became our sacrificial savior and only through him can we be given the means to be made right with God. The creator became our savior. The highest became the lowest. The eternal became temporal. The all-powerful became vulnerable and killable. Why? In order to reconcile sinners back to God. That is what this passage is saying to us. But, but here's my question. The question is, why is Jesus and his, according to Paul here, him presenting his body, his, his body of flesh for death, why is Jesus the only means by which we can be reconciled? Why, why does it have to be Jesus dying on a cross in our Place. Well, here's what's interesting. If you look at this uh, passage um, in the original Greek language, what you see is that Paul is intentionally using Old Testament sacrificial language. If, if in English, it's hard to catch, but when you look at it in the original language, what you discover is that Paul is trying to get these readers to hearken back to the Old Testament sacrificial system. 
Let me, let me give you some context for that if you don't know what that is. In the Old Testament, there was a tabernacle, and then eventually the tabernacle was replaced by a temple. But here's what you would do. Uh, once a year on the Day of Atonement, uh, the high priest would essentially sacrifice uh, an animal, a lamb, on behalf of the people's sins. A lot of people know about the Day of Atonement. But what a lot of people don't know is that that wasn't the only time animals were being sacrificed. You and your family could go anytime you wanted to sacrifice animals. And depending on the sin you committed, depending on uh, the amount of money your family had, you would bring either a lamb or some type of bird. And you would bring it to the temple, and here's what you would do. It was a very bloody and gory affair. Your family would bring Fluffy the lamb, if you were wealthy, the other wealthy people brought lambs, poor people brought birds of some type. But but you, you bring Fluffy the lamb to the priest, and here's what the priest would do. Right in front of you, the priest would lay his hand on the lamb's head, and he would literally transfer whatever sin you had committed from you to the lamb, and then he would slice the lamb's throat. And the lamb would represent what you deserved. Instead of me dying, the lamb was dying for me. But here's what's interesting about how the animals died, whether it was a bird or a lamb. They always died by bleeding out. They didn't club them to death. They didn't burn them to death. They would bleed them out. Why? Because in the Old Testament, blood represented life. Blood was your life source. So by it bleeding, it was literally a life for a life. And actually, uh, in this same chapter, Paul brings up blood. Because in the previous passage that we looked at, it says it is by the blood of Christ, of the cross, that we are made right. In the Old Testament, in order for there to be forgiveness, there needed to be blood. Blood needed to be shed. Hey, look, look what it says here. I'm going to read to you from just to show you that it's not just in the Old Testament, but even in the New Testament. Hebrews 9, 22 says this. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. Listen to this. The author of Hebrews says, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Romans 5, here's what it says, 9 through 10. Paul writes, since therefore we have been justified by his blood, don't miss that, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. So you see there in Romans, Paul, again, that like he does here, combining the idea of blood and reconciliation. In order for us to be made right, someone had to die. Bleed in particular, not just die, but bleed. Blood had to be shed. So the reason why Jesus is the only means by which we can be made right with God is what does John say when he sees Jesus for the first time? He says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. When Jesus goes to the cross, he is the greater Lamb. Those lambs, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of lambs that died, they weren't enough. The high priest couldn't sit down because the work wasn't done. But then all of a sudden, Jesus, the true Lamb of God, shows up. And John says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So when Jesus was on the cross, he had to bleed because it had to be his life for our life. That's why Jesus had to die. And not just die, but bleed. Because he was the ultimate sacrifice. The once and for all Lamb of God who died 
for the sins of the world. And what's crazy is in the Bible, Jesus is not just the sacrifice, he's the priest. Because we are told that after he made that once and for all sacrifice, now he sits at the right hand of the Father as a high priest. Why? Because he no longer, the work is done. There's no more sacrifices to be made. He's done. He did it. But blood needs to be shed. It needs to be shed. So hopefully what we see is just how much it took for you and I to be made right with God. It took the life, the death, and more specifically, the blood of Jesus for us to be made right. Which is why I said last week, when we plead the blood of Jesus in spiritual warfare, it's not a magical, mystical statement. It's literally you telling Satan, I don't belong to you anymore. I have been purchased by the blood of Christ. I have been forgiven by the blood of the lamb. You have no uh, authority here anymore, Satan, because I have been transferred from the domain of darkness to the domain of his kingdom. You get what I'm saying? That's really important, guys. And, and I want us to understand that. I, I bring all that up not to bore you, but just to show you what it took for us to be made right with God. So we see the need, we see the means, and now I want to look at the goal, the goal of reconciliation. And to do that, I'm going to reread the entirety of verse 22, okay? He, Jesus, has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, listen to this, this is the goal, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So, so we've seen the need which is our sinful condition. We've seen the means, which is the Savior's cross. And now we're going to look at the goal. What's the point of it all? Why did Jesus go through what he went through? Well, according to this passage, is to present us holy and blameless and above reproach, which again is Old Testament language. That when we are in Christ, we are presented in Christ to God. It's no longer we who live, I who live, but he who lives in me, right? We are in Christ now, so we are presented. The goal of reconciliation is for us to be presented to God as holy and blameless and above reproach. Let me unpack these words for you. Uh, The first word I want to highlight for you is the word holy. Holy. The word holy, it it means to be set apart for the purposes of God. It it means to be uh, dedicated or consecrated unto God, okay? We'll get back to that word. It's, it's a really important word that I want to unpack for you. The, the, the other word that I want you to see there, I'm going to actually combine um, blameless and above reproach because in the Greek, they're actually very similar words. Here's what it means to be blameless. Jesus, the goal of him reconciling us, reconciling us was to present us as blameless. The word blameless means to be without blemish. It means to be flawless, I love this. The word there, it means to be free, someone who is free from accusation. Isn't that beautiful? It means to be unchargeable, irreproachable, unblameable. That's why Jesus did it. So that we would be unchargeable, irreproachable, and unblameable. Free from accusation. Completely free from accusation is why Jesus did it. Now, here's the thing. 
When the world hears this whole concept, everything I just talked to you about, the Old Testament and the, the bloodiness and the, the, the goriness, and when the world, and maybe you're sitting here today doing this. I'm not talking about someone out there. You might be watching on the stream or you might be here in the room. When the world hears this concept of, of bleeding and dying and sacrificing, the world looks at that and be like, well, that's, that's pretty primitive. That's some archaic stuff. Oh, worse yet, that's judgmental. How, who are you? to call me a sinner? Who gives you the right to judge me? Here's the problem with the world. And if you're sitting here today and that's where you're at, here's the problem with the worldview that you hold, okay? According to Romans chapter one, God has given us creation and he's given us consciences. Whether you're a Christian or not, he's given us creation as a witness and our consciences as a witness. Every non-believer sees creation and has a conscience. So what that means is every non-believer struggles with guilt and with shame, just like everybody else does. That's just facts. That's biblical. But because this primitive stuff is below you, you have nowhere to go with the shame and with the guilt, which is why America is the most medicated and most counseled nation that's ever existed. Because people have shame and guilt and have nowhere to go with it. And here's what the world does. Because the world knows deep down, because of their consciences and because of creation, that there is a God, they're suppressing the truth of God. Here's what the world does with their guilt and their shame. They do two things. The world does one of two things. The first approach that the world takes is the only God can judge me approach. And we'll talk about that one in a second. The second approach the world takes, which is way more common today, is the only I can judge me approach. So let's unpack both. Because you might be actually believing one or both of these, okay? The first approach that the world takes is what I like to call the Tupac Shakur approach, okay? Uh, 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 Tupac, uh, for those of you who have no idea who that is, was, was a rapper who was killed back in the 90s. And one of the things that Tupac was known for was just being ex just extremely just bold and brash with his sin. He just didn't care. And one of the things he would always say, he actually had a tattoo that said it, is only God can judge me. I actually have a family member with that tattoo. That tells you the, the kind of family I come from, okay? Uh, and, and, and it's the only God can judge me approach. Here's the problem, Tupac. The problem is, is that that's who you should be worried about. The problem is, according to Romans 1, God has already judged you passively and will one day judge you actively. That's the last person you should be going to for the final verdict on your life. You, you have uh, said, okay, these court systems are not enough. I'm going to say, I'm going to go to the highest court in all the universe, and that's the court you should be worried about. And unfortunately, unless he came to know Jesus at the end of his life, he, that's exactly what happened to Tupac Shakur. He was judged by God. So, so, so the first approach, only God can judge me, that's why I'm preaching to you right now. Okay? But the more common approach over the last 20 years has become the only I can judge me. I don't care what the haters say. I don't care what people on social media say. I don't care what God says. The Bible's stupid anyways. It's only what I think about me. That's what most modern counseling is. Hey, it's all about how you feel. As long as you love yourself, almost every post on Facebook is about that. You got to love yourself. You got to take care of yourself. You got to value yourself. Here's the problem. You ready for this? When the final verdict belongs to you, what happens 
when the person who's condemning you is you? What happens when the person who's criticizing you is you? But what happens when the person who's saying you're not good enough is not someone out there, but it's you? Like, what do you do when it's you? That's that's what I struggle with. I could tell you right now as your pastor, I I was just telling someone yesterday uh, in our church, I said, a lot of people don't know this about me, but my greatest struggle has always been discouragement. Like the, 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 tr- the track that, that's looping in my head is I'm not a good enough pastor and I'm not a good enough parent and I'm not a good enough husband and I'm not a good enough preacher and I'm not a good enough, it's, it's always I'm not good enough. I could finish a sermon and hear nothing negative and I don't need to hear anything negative because I see everything negative. But just the other day, we were doing a Zoom call with some of our leaders last week and the Zoom call went well by anyone's standards, but I forgot to pray at the end of the Zoom call and I didn't share my screen, so they just looked at me for an hour and a half. Like it was bad enough that they already have to see me here. They had to look at me like this close for an hour and a half. And, I, and for the rest of the night, I was just moping around the house. So I'm like, I can't believe I didn't pray. What kind of pastor doesn't pray at the end of a Zoom call? But that's how some of us are, right? I don't, maybe for you it's something different. But, but maybe for you, the person who's condemning you and the person who's criticizing you and the person who's telling you you're not enough is you. You have preset factory settings from before Jesus. And and those are the things that are making you feel less than. No one else is saying it to you. But you're saying it to you. One, I relate. But two, that's the problem when we have the final say. And we talked about this a couple weeks ago. Those are the people who say, I know God's forgiven me, but I can't forgive myself. What that person is saying is that what I think of me is more important than what God thinks of me. That's what you're saying. And so I get it, but that's the problem when the person who justifies you is you. That's the problem. So the world makes those two errors. They go one of two ways. Either God can judge me or I can judge me. The problem with both of those, and the reason why the gospel is so much better is because in both of those, it's up to you. And the God can judge me lane, it's up to you because you got to prove it to God. And in the I can judge me lane, it's still up to you because you got to prove it to yourself. But what's beautiful about the gospel is that it's not about your performance at all. It's about Jesus's performance in your place. And so now you are accepted. You are holy. You are blameless. You are above reproach, not because of anything you've done, but because what Jesus did. That's what I love the world, the word holy. For so many Christians, the word holy comes with like this pressure, like I got to be holy. I got to be holy today. But here's what I want you to know. If the word holy means to be set apart, to be dedicated, to be consecrated, the word holy in the Old Testament is always a label before it's a lifestyle. Let me explain it to you this way. Did you know that in the Old Testament, uh, the lampstands in the temple were referred to as holy lampstands? The, 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 the ark was a holy ark. The, the basin, the, the table, they were holy items. Here's what I love about that. That if a lamp can be holy, then it shows me it has nothing to do with your behavior at all. It's, it's a label. You're either holy or you're not holy. You get what I'm saying? Because that lamp can't read the Bible. That lamp can't uh, uh, obey the law. So the fact that lamps can be holy shows you that our definition of holy is incomplete. That it's a label. It's a lifestyle. But it's a label first. You get what I'm saying? 
that changes your approach to holy. That I am holy positionally, period, because of Jesus, way before I am holy progressively and practically. So I'm holy because of salvation, positionally, but then I become holier over time because of sanctification, progressively. That'll change you. And all of a sudden, instead of being motivated by guilt, you're motivated by grace. And the word blameless is my favorite word because it says there that we are free from accusation, church. We are irreproachable. We are unblameable. That's beautiful. That now in Jesus, when you are in Christ and no longer in Adam, God sees you and he sees the perfect sacrifice of Jesus in your place. So when the voices show up, which the voices are going to show up, for many of us, it's the enemy, right? The enemy's condemning you. That's one of the things Satan does. He accuses. One of the most famous passages in the Old Testament is Zechariah chapter 3. And the high priest Joshua is standing before God, and Satan's there trying to accuse him. And God rejects the, the accusations, and it says that God takes his filthy garments and gives him a new garment. And Satan's accusations have to stop because if God's not accusing you, then who else can? That's what it says in Romans. I love the idea that part of what being blameless is is to be unchargeable. There's literally no charge that someone can bring up against you. There's no evidence, further evidence that can be brought up. The case can't be reopened. Jesus didn't come to put you on a payment plan. Jesus didn't come to put you on layaway. It's paid for. It's done. It's un- That's what it talks about in Romans 8. That there is no charge that can be brought up against God's elect because of what Jesus did. Unchargeable, irreproachable. But man, if you're anything like me, especially this one, when it comes to blemish, the idea of, you know, being without blemish. uh, Just this week, when I was younger in middle school or early high school, I had a lot of problems with acne. And so to this day, like if I get a pimple out of the blue, it brings all the insecurities back. I'm like, oh, here we go. It's coming back. You know, eighth grade will get ready. Get the braces on, Right. And just this week, just this, literally just yesterday, I got this big old pimple on my head, on my face, right? And I'm like, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? I got to go to Element. This thing is huge. Like, you know, we're talking about space. This looks like Saturn on my face. You know what I mean? And like and, or, or creation, right? I got Saturn on my face. And, and, and what made me feel better, get this, wasn't the gospel. It was that I got to wear a mask. <laughs> and no one's going to see it because I'm wearing a mask. I got another 24 hours to deal with this thing because I'm wearing a mask. And that's how a lot of us deal with our blemishes, our actual blemishes with masks and makeup, right? But spiritually, you may not know this, but we wear masks. We know that deep down in and of ourselves, we are unclean. We are unworthy. We are not unblemished. And so we wear masks to cover ourselves, to cover our nakedness. We create fig leaves like Adam and Eve did to try to cover our lack of righteousness. But what's beautiful, church, listen, if what Jesus did is true and real, then you could take the mask off because in the only eyes that matter, which are God's eyes, the only eyes that matter, you're accepted and you're clean and you're worthy and you're approved of and you're free of accusation. It doesn't matter if the enemy brings accusation or if you bring accusation or your spouse brings accusation. It doesn't matter. You are free from accusation. You are unblameable and irreproachable in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. 
You know, one of my favorite stories in the Bible about this is in Mark chapter five. In Mark chapter five, you have a woman who is struggling with hemorrhaging. She's bleeding continually. She's hemorrhaging. And now one of the things that, another thing about blood that you might not know is that not only was it part of the sacrificial system, but if you were bleeding, whether it was your time of the month or you were struggling with what this woman was struggling with, she was hemorrhaging, bleeding all the time for years on years on end. If you bled, you were considered unclean. You were considered unworthy. You were considered blemished. So this woman, it says that for years she struggled with this. Couldn't do anything about it. She tried to do stuff about it. She went to a lot of different masks, a lot of different fig leaves, a lot of different places to deal with her nakedness and her unworthiness and her uncleanliness. But she was considered unclean. Anything that she touched would be made unclean, whether that was her bed or whether that was her spouse. There's a good chance she was never married because no Jewish man would expose himself to that because then he, he himself would never be able to go to the temple. So it's a woman who's most likely single, who's been dealing with this bleeding and this uncleanliness for years, it says, for years. Now, here's the thing about being unclean in the Old Testament, okay? In the Old Testament, with some, when something unclean or unholy came in contact with something clean and holy, one of two things happened. According to Leviticus, the first thing that happened was the thing that was unclean and unholy would make the thing that was clean and holy unclean and unholy, right? It would, it would literally be transferred. The unclean thing, the unholy thing, would make the clean holy thing unclean and unholy. That's the first thing that would happen, right? But the second thing that would happen, and this one's probably even more interesting to me, is sometimes when something unholy and unclean came in contact with something holy and clean, it wouldn't necessarily uh, 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 make it worse. The, the holy thing would actually destroy the unholy thing. It would destroy it. And I'll give you two examples from the Old Testament. Uh, when, when, when Moses is on the mountain, God tells Moses, make sure you tell the Israelites, don't touch the mountain. The mountain's holy. And if you touch the mountain, you will die. The holy would destroy the unholy. Another example is in 2 Samuel, I think chapter 6 around there, you have the, the moving of the ark and you have a guy named Uzzah who, who he's moving it and the ark starts to fall and Uzzah goes to reach out to keep it from falling and it says that he died on the spot. And one commentator said that the mistake that Uzzah made is that he thought he was cleaner than the ground. Uzzah thought he was more pure and more clean than the dirt the ark was about to fall on. So two things happen. When holy comes in contact with unholy. When clean comes in contact with unclean. Either the holy thing, the clean thing becomes unholy and unclean, or the unholy, unclean thing is destroyed. This woman, who was considered unclean, goes up to Jesus in the crowd, because everyone she touched became unclean. They didn't know. But every person she touched was unclean, because they couldn't even touch her. This is a woman who probably hadn't been touched in years, let alone had a spouse in, or a community. She, she walks up to Jesus through the crowd, and it says that she touches Jesus. And that right when she touches him, her bleeding stops. Her hemorrhaging is healed. So here's what's beautiful about the gospel, and I don't want you to miss this. Remember the two things that happened. The first thing that could have happened by her touching Jesus is she could have made Jesus unclean and unholy. But that didn't happen. The second thing that could have happened is she could have died for touching a holy thing. But why 
isn't there a death? Because in the Old Testament, we see that whenever the unholy touches the holy, there's a death. Why wasn't there a death? Well, there was a death, but it wasn't hers. Jesus would one day die for her. There was a death still. But for the first time in human history, it wasn't the unholy thing dying. It was the holy thing dying. And her cleanliness, get this church, didn't come from her blood stopping. It came from his blood flow starting. Can I get an amen? Are you with me? That's what we see. That's what we see. Here, here's a, a, before I move to the last point, I, I want to read to you. You know, I don't often do this, but I just want to show you um, how beautiful the Greek language is. This, this is a translation from Dr. Kenneth West. And uh, he's, he passed away several years ago, but he's my favorite uh, Bible uh, Greek scholar. And, and he actually takes the Greek, and a lot of times our translations, they try to like smooth them out and make them sound better in English. This is actually what it says in the Greek language, this verse. I want to reread it to you so we can recap before we move on to the last point. Ready? Here's what it says. And you, and you who were at one time those who were in a settled state of alienation and hostile with respect to your intents in, to your intents in the sphere of your works, which are pernicious, pernicious, yet now, get this, he reconciled in the body of his flesh through his death. And I love the last part of the Greek. Here's what it actually says in the Greek. In order that he might present you holy without blemish and unchargeable in his searching and penetrating gaze. That's what it says directly from the Greek, that, that Jesus did all that. What was the goal? In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before God's searching and unpenetrating gaze. The only gaze that matters is the gaze of God. And that's the gaze that Jesus makes us right before. Amen? So we see the need, we see the means, and we also see the goal. And I want to conclude today by looking at the proof, the proof of reconciliation. Look what he says in verse 23. In verse 23, it says this. It says, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So the last thing we see here in this text, in this passage, is we see the proof of reconciliation. In other words, what, what Paul is saying here is that if you truly have been reconciled, there should be proof. There should be evidence. There should be fruit. But, but what's interesting, because some of you may be sitting here thinking, I think I've been reconciled with God, but how do I know? Like, how can I be sure? Well, well, what's interesting is that when you first read what Paul writes, it almost makes it seem like you can lose your salvation. Because he says in verse uh, 23, if indeed you continue in the faith, it almost seems as if what Paul is saying is that you have Jesus and you can lose Jesus. That's almost what it seems like he's saying. But what you're going to see is that because Paul is dealing with a group of Christians that are believing false doctrine or are tempted to believe the false heresy of the Colossians, Paul is actually more concerned with their theology than he is with their security. Okay? Why do I say that? Well, the word continue there in Greek, it means to abide. 
It means to remain. It means to stay still and not move from a place. He says that we are to continue in the faith. So in other words, Paul is not necessarily concerned about their losing their salvation. He's actually more doubting if they ever had it. He says, if you walk away and believe another gospel, I'm not concerned about you losing it, but I'm concerned about the fact that you ever actually have it. That actually lines up with what the rest of the Bible says too, that once saved, always saved. And here's why. Because what you see when you look at scripture, Luke 8, for example, Jesus talks about the parable of the soils. He says that certain soils receive the seed, but then it doesn't stick, either because the soil is rocky or because of the sun and the thistles. And they end up not really ever getting it and actually becoming followers of Jesus. It's not that they lose their salvation, it's that they never really actually understood what salvation actually was. In, in uh, John chapter six, there's a story where Jesus is preaching a really hard doctrine, and it says that those who were following him, many of those who were following him, turned around and walked away. Did they lose their salvation? No. They just never really understood what true salvation was. And even in 1 John chapter two, John is talking about false teachers who used to be in the church and then walked away. And John says, they left us because they were never of us. He's not saying they had it and they lost it. He says, they, they, they left us because they were never of us. I want to encourage you with this because if you're struggling with assurance of your salvation, my goal here this morning is not to make you feel guilty or feel like you're, you're falling away because you can't. Because according to this passage, and here's what I love about this text, one of, you, one of the tenses that you see again and again and again all throughout this text is the aorist tense. What do I mean by that? The aorist tense in Greek is past tense. So when it says that Jesus has reconciled you, that's past tense. You can't change that. It's already done. He's already reconciled you. And then in Romans chapter 8, the, you see the aorist tense again. And I love this. It says, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And them, those who he uh, called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. The word glorified has to do with heaven. And in God's eyes, when you place your faith in Jesus, the whole thing's in aorist tense. It's already done. You can't lose it because if you're already glorified, past tense in God's eyes, aorist tense, you can't do anything to lose that. And so what Paul is concerned with here is not necessarily them losing it. He's concerned, did you ever actually have it? It's not their, the his, his, their security that he's worried about. It's their theology that he's worried about. In other words, one of the internal proofs that you've been reconciled is that you remain reconciled. Like you, you, you continue in the faith. You start and you finish. It's one of the proofs. But the gospel is not ultimately about you loving Jesus, it's about Jesus loving you. The, the, the gospel is not ultimately about how much you sacrifice for Jesus, but how much Jesus sacrificed for you. The gospel is not about you holding on to Jesus for dear life, but Jesus holding on to you by giving his life. That's what the gospel does. And so if you want to know if you're reconciled, one of the ways is by you continuing in the faith. Another way, according to 2 Corinthians 5, is that you become a minister of reconciliation. Paul says that when you are reconciled, you then become a reconciler. And one of the ways you can prove it and show it that you've actually been reconciled vertically is you go out to then bring reconciliation horizontally. 
And one of the things that we have to be aware of as a church is a lot of churches pick between the two types of reconciliation. Like, oh, no, no, we don't talk about uh, socioeconomic reconciliation. We don't talk about racial reconciliation. We only talk about vertical reconciliation here. We're, we're, we're a vertical church. We don't, we don't talk about all that other stuff. And then you have other churches that don't ever talk about the vertical and only ever talk about the horizontal. In light of Scripture, we're supposed to talk about both. That if I truly have been vertically reconciled to God, I have to be a reconciler across political lines, across racial lines, across socioeconomic lines. Both are required in order for us to be the church of Jesus Christ. Amen? So, what we see in this passage is that in the gospel, Jesus meets the need He provides the means, he accomplishes the goal, and he authenticates the proof. Amen? Let's go ahead and close our eyes, bow our heads. Listen, if you're here today and you're saying, you know, Will, I thought I knew who Jesus was. I thought I knew what it meant to be in relationship with him, but now that you're describing this to me, I'm realizing that really the person who ultimately judges me is me. And that's why I'm dealing with shame and condemnation and guilt. I'm I'm performing on a stage for people, for for others or for myself. But but, but the person who I'm ultimately uh, uh, trying to be made right with is me, not God. Listen, if you're sitting here today and and what is keeping you from God is your shame and your guilt, I want you to know that at the cross, Jesus didn't just deal with your sin. He dealt with your shame and with your guilt. And by him dying in your place and bleeding on your behalf, now you are made righteous. You are forgiven, not because of your sacrifices for God, but because of God's sacrifice for you. All it takes for you to be transferred from the kingdom and the domain of darkness to the kingdom of the son he loves. All it takes, the Bible says, is for you to believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Right now, that's all it takes. Say, I want you, Jesus, to be my Lord and to be my Savior. I want you to come into my life. And if that's you today, you want to you pray that prayer, you want to accept Jesus, I would love for you to reach out to me. Uh, at Pastor Will at highpointmemphis.com. Reach out to me. I would love to hear from you. Or you could text uh, the uh, high points, the number 97000. Let us know that I decided to follow Jesus as my Lord and as my Savior today. And I, I want to pray now for all the, the people here at our church who know Jesus and are just growing in their appreciation and their understanding of reconciliation. Lord, Lord, I pray for our church. I pray that we as High Point Church, that we as the people of High Point Church here in the Mid-South and in the Midwest and in the Northeast and in the West Coast, all over the nation, Lord, that we would be a church that understands our need for reconciliation, that turns to you as our means for reconciliation, that, that embraces the goal and then displays the proof of reconciliation. God, I pray that we would be a church as individuals and corporately who who display the proof of reconciliation, not just internally by our continuing in the gospel, but externally by being reconcilers, ministers of reconciliation who bring reconciliation everywhere we go. Help us to bring reconciliation to this city, not because of who we are, but because of who you are. Lord, we love you. We thank you. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said.